And I've actually presented on the topic of elections and the potential changes in, in the tax code. I did so in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and I got another one coming up in 2020, and I really enjoyed doing it. Were you um, ever right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of the Wealth and Law podcast. Uh, I am Brent Nelson, and not per usual, I'm joined by special guest host, Darren Case. Darren is a partner in the law firm Tiffany & Bosco in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, somebody that I've known for pretty much my entire career, uh, at least 10 years, and somebody that I admire a lot. And so, Darren, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Good to be on. Yeah. So how are you guys doing? Oh, doing pretty well. Uh, we are we obviously staying really, really busy. Uh, state planning during a pandemic with you know, face masks and gloves and, and all sorts of things. It's been quite interesting. I did my, my first, I called it a, a drive-through estate plan execution, uh, where we had clients drive through uh, in a car and we came out to our old circle outside of our office. We had witnesses and notaries and took care of that. So that was, that was a first. Uh, I, candidly, I regret it because it was 115 out and it was Ooh. pretty miserable. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah we've yeah. we we've pretty much not been meeting anybody in our office. Are you guys even meeting in the office right now? We still have our office is still open. Um, actually, I'm I'm one of the few. Uh, allegedly, I'm an essential worker like you are. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've had our office open. When this pandemic first started, uh, there was about six of us on two gigantic floors here at the Biltmore Esplanade, and now most of the people are back. But now, yeah, we're still meeting. Um, and usually in our large boardroom. So I have like six feet and, and then some between everybody. But it, it's certainly been an interesting process. Yeah, we, I mean, we have office space. We could be meeting people in the office, but the office closed for a bit and then it's opened up recently. And what ended up happening was we were, we were already set up to be virtual. So that was not a change at all. And then March hit and we basically flipped all of our clients into phone calls or video conferences or the exceptional case like meet at their house out on the back porch or something. So to the extent that we've seen anybody in person that's been at their house. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Have you guys been doing any uh, remote executions with the new changes in the, the notary laws? No, but I don't, we're not, uh, we're not set up as remote notaries. We're not, it's not really licensed. We're not issued. Mm -hmm. uh, remote notaries right now so we don't have one mm -hmm. and i've i mean when i read through the statutes and the regulations and for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about uh, arizona along with a bunch of other states have either statutes or regulations or both that allow a notary to notarize documents remotely i.e via a uh, computer and so arizona kind of front-loaded theirs they were supposed to become effective in July. So now obviously we're beyond the effective date. 
And when I, I mean, when I read through them, it seemed pretty clear that you had to get basically special permission from the secretary of state to become a remote notary. And you had to like have a special remote notary system and stamp, at least the way I was reading it. And I was just like, mm, I don't think I'm going to do that. So. Yeah. I've uh, worrisome about the formalities of the execution as well. It's, I mean, yes, I think if, if there ever was a remote estate planning execution, and even if all the formalities were correct, I mean, the fact that you just weren't present, you know, raises some potential, you know, arguments that litigators can make. Uh, I do think, obviously, any defense of an estate plan that's challenged uh, that was executed during a pandemic, they've got a you know, good defense of saying, come on, judge, I, I had to execute this under extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think most um, practitioners in the area, you know, they see that it is a possibility, but the strong preference, obviously, is to not uh, utilize remote notaries or remote execution. There's just too many question marks that come up. I, I mean, I think the rules are, even though they're brand new, okay, and even though they relate to things happening over a computer, they're actually kind of antiquated the way they're written. Because in my mind, uh, doing a quote unquote remote notarization via a video conference where I can see the person signing uh, the document and then maybe me, the notary, I stamp it maybe the same day, maybe later. I don't see why that's much different than me being on the opposite side of a window from them signing and me witnessing them sign it. it, it you know, is a is a video conference so much functionally different from looking through a window that you can't do it? To me, I don't follow the logic, but so far the legislature doesn't agree. So <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll keep uh, doing live executions for the time being. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Other than that, um, I mean, state planning during a pandemic is, is it's kept us busy. I mean, we have the phone just is, is ringing off the hook, and you know, a lot of people are thinking about their estate plans. But uh, a lot of people have old uh, estate plans that they they want to get reviewed. So, I mean, it, it, it obviously I wish there wasn't a pandemic, but it's keeping estate planners uh, like us pretty busy. Yeah, that's what we're seeing too. It's really just pushing work that needed to be done anyways forward a bit it's like an extra bit of motivation it's not a hundred percent of the motivation it's just an extra bit of the motivation to get people to do the thing that they've been thinking about doing anyways or that needed to be done anyhow and there's a lot of old estate plans out there that really need to be touched up i mean the the laws have been changing so frequently that it, both on a state level and then on a federal income tax level on a federal gift gift and estate tax and generation skipping tax level that a five-year-old plan is almost like obsolete. It almost doesn't even work. Like you have to touch them up so quickly now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, recently I've been seeing several uh, estate plans where the trust was done uh, pre-Arizona uh, Trust Code. And, and so pre-ATC, pre so I, I just look at the date of signature and I'm just like, all right, this was executed in 99. The Arizona Trust Code really was, you know, for the most part fully implemented in 2001. And so just without even opening the document and seeing the date, I, I know what provisions they're missing. So, mm -hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of estate plans that way or a lot of trusts that had an AB split to it um, created when the Bush tax cuts were early on in the process where the exemption was only a million, mm -hmm. where now it's perhaps not needed, but uh, you know, potentially those estate plans might be coming back into to vogue soon with uh, an upcoming election. But um, yeah, a lot of a lot of estate planning updates, a lot of, uh, you know, families where their kids are now a lot older, and then they had provisions in the trust that ultimately, um, 
you know, the, I hate these provisions, but one third at age 25, one third at 30, remaining balance at 30, and now the kids are all over that. Um, I actually am curious to ask you, Brent. So mm -hmm. I'm very passionate, obviously, and I know you are as well, about when beneficiaries receive assets. You know, a big part of my practice involves family meetings, um, you know, serving more of an counselor role and figuring out how to not stifle a child's ambition in life. And, you know, ultimately, how can the kids be good stewards of the wealth? So I'd be curious about, I mean, obviously, every estate plan is different, but, you know, perhaps you have some go-to provisions um, that you like to structure, and, and I can chime in on my own as well. But I figure, I'm just curious to pick your brain. Mm -hmm. on, on what only do you like to do for beneficiaries in a variety of circumstances? I, it, for any clients of any kind of means, it, even let's say half a million dollars, uh, which statistically is a lot of money. I mean, that puts you in the you know top 10% easily in the country, okay? Um, I try to encourage them to not give the money directly to the kids and to leave it in mm -hmm. trust for the kids' lifetimes. And if they have heartburn about the idea that the kids are not getting the money, then I try to soothe them by saying, okay, look, we'll set this up. It'll be a trust for the kids. It'll have almost full discretion. They'll have almost full discretion as the trustee of their own trust to make distributions for themselves. Not total discretion, but almost full. And they're basically going to be able to use the money however they want with, you know, enough limit to maintain some credit protection. Because if we give it to them, they can't create it for themselves. So you can create this thing for them easily. And it probably won't really cost any more money for, from our perspective. And then they have it, they can use it how they want. And guess what? If they get divorced, the money in there should be protected from their ex-spouse. That's usually the, where the, you know, quote unquote sale is made is the thought mm -hmm. of now a soon to be ex uh, son-in-law or daughter-in-law getting their hands on the family money that like that usually mm -hmm. sells itself. So that's, I'm doing a lot of that. And then to your point about like AB trust, I'm not doing a lot of I'm doing zero AB trust. I don't even have an AB trust form. Um, if I'm doing split trust, it's either what we're calling an AC trust, where A trust being the survivor share of the trust, they can amend it, revoke it however they want. The quote unquote C trust being a qualified turnable interest property trust, a Q-tip trust. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll get the marital deduction. We'll use portability to push the XX excess exemption to the survivor. We can do a reverse Q-tip election to get the GST exemption onto the Q-tip trust so that we don't lose the GST exemption. And then at the second death, we'll get another bite at the stepped up basis apple. Mm -hmm. And then, and then for clients that are more in the sort of $10 million range, we're arranged, we're setting that up as a, what's called a Clayton Q-tip where you can make an election, a partial Q-tip mm -hmm. election, and then fund a, a B or a bypass trust. Uh, if you make the part partial Q-tip election, anything we can do to defer how long we have to make decisions, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, so yeah, the AB trust is in my mind, I call it an ABC trust. So, you know, mm -hmm. it has the bypass, the marital and the survivor's trust. But yeah, as far as the dispositive provisions for kids, um, yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. But you know, a lot of times when if you have a client that's in the wealth accumulation stages um, and, and the kids are very young, um, you know, th there's the concept obviously of if we have these assets in an irrevocable subtrust, they have to file their own tax return. If for some reason they miss distributing the income out progressive rates for the irrevocable trust, they're, they're taxed, you know, at the highest tax bracket after roughly $12,000 of income. Like, keep that in mind. So, you know, a, a standard dispositive provisions for, you know, people just gathering assets, if we're going to have to use the distribution 
ages. You know, there's a few things that I always, you know, throw out there. I tell clients that, you know, for one, the human brain isn't fully developed until age 25. So, you know, financial decisions prior to that is very poor. Mm -hmm. That's actually just for women. For men, it's a little bit later in life, but it's only like 25 and a half or 26 for men. Most times when I tell a husband and wife this, the wife says, oh, is it 40 for men? No, it's, it's just a little bit later. But <laughs> it's, obviously, there's the, the HEM standard, health education means to support. But if we had to pick distribution ages, I picked on the 25, 30, and, and 35 before. I tell clients, if you take a step back and think about that, during the most formative years of a child's life about you know developing a career, finishing up their education, um, you know, getting married, we don't want to thrust this wealth on them to, to really, you know, stifle their ambitions and slow things up. So if I had to pick distribution ages, they seem like funky ages. And I explain the, you know, statistical backing on them. I say one third at age 33. And again, if it's not a lot of money, I'd say the remaining balance at age 42. People always ask, they're like, these just seem like such odd ages where financial maturity for younger generations really starts to come to fruition in the early 30s. Where age 42, you can look at it two ways. First is that, you know, in the bell curve of financial responsibility, it kicks up the most at age 42. Or you can look at another way. If a kid doesn't have it together by age 42, they, they probably never will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, I, I'm a big, big proponent of keeping the assets in those sub-trusts and, and, and telling clients that, listen, that at a certain point, if your kid's responsible enough and, and they have, you know, sufficient financial acumen, they can serve as the trustee of their own subtrust and have the best of both worlds, as you were describing, Brent, where they have access to the assets, but if they leave the assets in there, they're asset protected. And if they're smart enough to realize that, hey, if I just distribute the income out, it's included in my tax brackets and not the irrevocable trust in, in the worst, you know, progressive rates. So those are the things I'm always curious to, to pick attorneys' brains, but as mm -hmm. the net worth goes up, uh, you know, it, it's retaining the assets and trust. I still try to like to get something out to the child, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, so long as they're ready for it. So even if you have a client that's, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth, if you get them something like a small chunk, I, I call it a test distribution. The small muscle, if they blow through it, they might, might learn from that uh, before they get access to the big pot. So I, I, yeah, curious to pick your brain on that. Yeah, I try. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely try to encourage clients to set up lifetime trust for their kids, high net worth clients, you know, let's say 10 million or higher uh, net worth. We're thinking a lot more about setting up dynastic trusts. So it's going to be in trust for kids and grandkids, et cetera. Um, if, if they want to give the kid total access to the money in the trust, then we'll use a him standard for the kid as the trustee. We'll allow for an ind quote unquote independent trustee that the child can select uh, who can make distributions to them for their best interests which is pretty much anything. And then I also try to talk to them about the idea of like, if you, all right, everybody wants to take money out of the trust, but there's no rule that says the trust can't own pretty much any kind of asset. So mm -hmm. there's actually not a lot of benefit to distributing money out if the trust can just own it. So, you know, let's say the kid needs to buy a house. Fine. Let the trust be the bank or be the lender or let the trust buy the house outright and try to maintain to the extent you can that principal balance in the trust because that's where it's protected. When it goes 
you know, once it goes out, out of the trust, all bets are off. And so it's, it gets back to kind of what you were talking about, Darren, which I absolutely love. And that is like having family business, having uh, family uh, meetings and counseling and just educating people on how to use trust in a positive way so that the family money, which is almost always very hard earned somehow, uh, doesn't just flit away on useless things. You know, you can preserve mm-hmm. it a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another uh, interesting aspect of this exact concept, and I'll give a, a shout out or, you know, to one of our practitioners in the area. So Ben Volker over at Merrill Lynch, um, brilliant attorney working you know, in-house for the bank. And it's nice to see that large financial institutions, trust companies are willing to do this, where the the concepts of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three generations, where pretty much everybody in our area has heard this, of, you know, 90% of the wealth is gone, you know, it's earned by one generation and by the third is completely gone. And so how do we, how do we get into that 10% that doesn't squander it? And being a good steward of the wealth um, and, and so we, you know, we've worked together on, on quite a few, you know, matters where, you know, Merrill Lynch, U.S. Trust, Bank of America, and I know every other bank does this, so it's not just you know, indicative of one versus the other, is that the bank is willing to serve as the sole trustee for, let's say, the first four years, kind of an arbitrary number, but you know this and I know this, is that the estate tax return, uh, it's never filed within nine months, it takes 15, and then they got to wait for the audit period to, to close. Close and sometimes they open up another audit. So four years is pretty safe. Have the bank do the heavy lifting, the tax returns, and get everything you know funneled into these sub trusts for the kids, where the kids are still learning from the, you know the corporate trustee. They're working with the um, you know trust officers, which a lot of them are you know tax and estate planning attorneys with LLMs working with them. But then at the end of year four, the child you know, who's, who's the beneficiary of that sub-trust can serve as a co-trustee with the corporate trust trustee for, let's say, a period of three years. And then at the end of that, you know, total seven years, the child can, if they, they so choose, serve as the sole trustee of their own sub-trust. Now, the, the high net worth families, they, they love this idea because they realize that they're going to be working with the child and educating them, you know, beyond their wildest dreams and preparing them to receive the wealth, understanding the asset protection components of it. And by, you know, in the end of the seven years, I mean, they darn well better be ready, but I mean, absolutely working with the financial institution, the attorney that they will be, and that you know increases the the uh, likelihood that the wealth will be successfully transferred to the next generation. Yeah, I like those setups too. I think it works really nicely, and it creates a nice handoff. To, so you're not just throwing somebody, a child, into the deep end, so to speak, uh, because there's always a very steep learning curve. It'd be a really rare occasion where one of the kids um, actually has any sort of uh, experience dealing with trust. They may not even know what a trust is, and let alone to know how one functions, how you administer it, what the tax implications of the trust are, what the asset protection functions of the trust are. I mean, all of that is something that they have to learn if they're going to really be the trustee effectively. So I I do like that setup. I do that for some of my clients where we kind of have a soft handoff with a a co-trustee for a certain period of time. And then once that period of time ends, uh, the mechanism that we use, which uh, I'm curious to see if it's the same for you, is we just say, you know, let's say after that seven-year period, the child then has the discretion 
they don't have to, but they have the discretion to remove the co-trustee if they want to do that. And they could appoint another co-trustee if they wanted, but they just have that discretion. So if they are feeling great about like Maryland's trust company or whomever else is the corporate trustee, everything can continue on as normal. And if they're ready to fly solo, they can just remove the corporate trustee and go for it. Agreed. Yeah. There's instances where, it, you know, the, the child is uh, enjoys that the financial institution is doing all the heavy lifting and, uh-huh. and you know, that's not really the intent that the parents had, but yeah, you're right. Uh, we never make it forced. It, it's an option. So yeah, the way I draft it is, you know, upon the uh, written request to the then serving corporate trustee, the child may serve as the sole trustee of their sub trust and obviously giving them the power to appoint successor trustees. Mm-hmm. Obviously got to navigate through the laws of that, but yeah, giving them the power like that as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, COVID uncertainties, we are also coming up on a presidential and major congressional election here on November 3rd. Uh, So why don't we talk about the possibility, of course, nobody really knows at this point, but the possibility of a Biden White House. Of course, there's also the possibility of a Biden White House and the Democrats absolutely controlling both houses of Congress. Uh, You know, we could uh, maybe talk about how many votes they really need in the Senate to do as much damage as they want or as much good as they want, depending on uh, your perspective on what they're going to do or planning to do. But that's a that's a distinct possibility. And Joe Biden has put forth a plan. Yeah, he has. Uh, and it's an interesting plan. And I've actually presented on the topic of elections and the potential changes in, in the tax code. I did so in 2008, 2012, and 2016. And I got another one coming up in 2020. And I really enjoyed doing it. Were you um, ever right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, I've never been. Yeah, the, uh, so I, I'm preparing for the, the presentation. For, for your Southern Arizona State Planning Council uh, next month. And I was going back to look at the presentation I did in 2016. And I mean, this isn't, you know, a political discussion, but the polls showed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States. And they were, you know, favoring her, in, in, you know, by, by quite a bit. And so my presentation in trying to predict, I really spent a lot of time on lowered estate tax exemption amount. I had a whole slide about the return to the prevalence of islet planning. Um, and, and sure enough, now I'm going through these slides. I'm like, wow, I was I was way wrong. So I'm going to have proper disclaimers when I present in 2020 about, hey, uh, these are some predictions, but uh, we're really basing this on what the, the plans being proposed are. And, and so for, for those listening, you're very familiar. Obviously, the estate tax exemption amount right now is $11.58 million. So for married couples, it's the, the easily to compute $23.16 million. Goodness gracious, I, I can't wait for that to be adjusted for inflation to make oh. it a little bit easier. But uh, so the proposal for the Biden tax plan in that area, there's a lot of other, I guess, juicy things for, for tax and estate planning attorneys that just they're eye popping. They're alarming to a certain extent on how busy we could be for estate planning. But the Biden tax proposal is actually proposing to eliminate the Trump tax bill, i.e. the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or just reducing that exemption amount in half. So half of 11.58 million is 5.79 million. Um, but I mean, that's not an exact number. The, the IRS and Treasury Department would re- need to recalculate that number. But so they're proposing to cut it in half, or Biden has proposed to even lowering it to as low as 3.5 million per person. 
That's for estate tax exemption, gift tax exemption, and generation skipping transfer tax exemption. So a drop from 11.58 million to 3.5 million per person. So that is, and we could probably pause on, on that um, and kind of chime in on everything going on with that type of planning. But, but right now, if that potential drop happens, you have to have your clients that are high net worth and ultra high net worth use up all of their exemption if they can. And it's it's a difficult conversation to have with clients of, you know, calling them and say, hey, I need you to gift 11.58 million per, per spouse. And here's the strategies that we have. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on, on that proposal. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, I think it's going to be at least five million going to go down to at least 5 million. I, I know I've, I've heard the number 3.8 thrown around as well. And Biden wasn't alone among Democratic candidates to throw that number around. I actually think that was the number that Bernie Sanders was even throwing around. Um, Correct. Yep. So it's not that's like even even the furthest left that you get in that um, that group of candidates in the Democratic primary, that was as low as they were willing to push the estate tax exemption query whether there's a little bit of self-dealing involved in that because all those people are worth at least three and a half million dollars. But um, <laughs> but remember that the five, so pre-Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the exemption was five million, which was the highest it had ever been. That happened on the watch of the Obama administration. It was Obama mm -hmm. who signed that increase into law. So I think my if I had to prognosticate, of course, with huge disclaimers here, I would I would guess that if they were trying to negotiate a tax bill with Republicans, they would come in with 3.5 and they would negotiate up to five. They're clearly comfortable with five. I, I, I don't think there's any, any reason to think that a, a Biden White House compositionally is going to have people dramatically different from an Obama White House. So five is probably a reasonable place to expect the estate tax exemption to end up. What it means for this year is on November 5th, we'll say, if we have election results by then, uh, <laughs> there's going to be a huge mad rush into all of the people's estate planning attorney's offices to get stuff mm -hmm. done. Because it's because you're right. It's, it's going to be a use it or lose it situation. And I think it's important for, for everybody to realize this. And obviously, Brent, you realize this, but I, you know, I've had some questions about how is the, the estate tax exemption amount calculated for accounting purposes in the sense that if they're taking exemption amount away, where does it come from? And, and the system that's in place, it's the FIFO system. So first in, first out. So if they're taking exemption away, so if we're going down from 11.58 million to, let's just say 5 million, they're, they're taking the amounts ultimately that, that, that you start with. That means that if you've made some gifts previously, you may end up with no exemption after the tax bill changes. That's why it's important to tell clients that, hey, um, really the effective strategy is to use up all of your exemption. Now, now 23.16 million, that's obviously a lot of money. Now, you obviously have clients that are well over that amount. I, I have the same, and you know we have lots of clients everywhere in between. But the some of the questions that, that come up is that, well, you know, gosh, we're not comfortable of giving you know, 23.16 million. It's a it's a wonderful problem to have, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you know, what should we do if you know we can just use one exemption? Well, that that's a great question in the sense. Well, you can have one spouse use up all of their 11.58 million, 
than the other spouse that has exemption amount. If theirs is reduced, then they still have ultimately um, some left to play with. I, I think that's an important thing that, to keep in mind. And if you want to take the analysis a step further of which spouse should use their exemption, well, you ask the clients uh, the question that, you know, we'd, we'd make our jobs a lot easier if we knew this. You, you put the question back on them and say, well, which one of the spouses plans to die first? <laughs> so so uh, obviously, if you have a spouse that is in ill health, you, you probably want to use their exemption, uh, you know, before the other spouse. So there's a lot of those types of things that, that you really need to, to think about uh, here. Yeah, it's really tough. I think the ultimate, and, and I and I agree with that analysis of if you're not quite sure um, what to do and you don't want to give away all of your exemption right now because that could leave you with zero if the laws change and now you're in a really tough spot. Now, I'm saying that I think that's the client's perspective. I think from your and my perspective, we could think of three or four easy ways off the top of our heads right now to do a bunch of planning without any exemption. But, you know, the, the client's perspective would be, I, oh no, I don't have any exemption. So what am I supposed to do? Now every gift is going to cost me money. Um, yeah, it makes logical sense to try to guess the winner or loser in the, in the game of life and use up that exemption ultimately of that person you know, leave the other spouse alone. Ultimately though, the answer is whatever amount the client can convince themselves to use, they should do it. And the day to do it is today. And the next best day is tomorrow. And the next best day is the day after that. And then the day after that and the day after that, because um, the magic of compounding says that even if you uh, have let's say 10 or $12 million, reasonable assumptions of how much growth you could have on that money, three, four, 5%, mean in 15, 20 years, it's gonna be easily double. And you know, do you think that doing the planning now, when you can give away all of that double amount to your kids now is gonna be beneficial or not? And I think the answer is almost always yes. Like do it now and all of that future appreciation is shifted off to the kids. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, it's never gonna be subject to estate tax for you and we can set it up so it's not gonna be subject to estate tax for the kids unless they substantially change the laws. And that that's kind of the conversation. It's like, what amount are you willing to give and if it's something more than zero, then do it and do it now. And then not, if not now, tomorrow and the day after and the day after, you know, as soon as possible. <laughs> I think the humorous part is you're talking about when's the best time to do it today, when's the next best time to do it tomorrow and the next day. Mm -hmm. You were thinking of the correct answer of the, the power of compounding. I was selfishly looking at it as like, well, if you get it done today, my end of the year is going to look a hell of a lot better. <laughs> we're going to have the mad rush at the end of the year. So, yeah, it's, I like where your head's at. I'm being a little selfish. But, uh, yeah, some of the transactions, as you know, uh, that are available to clients in this area, I mean, different practitioners, uh, you know, being on this podcast will say different things. In fact, uh, maybe we'll bug Jonathan Morrison, uh, you know, here in town, you know, here up here in Phoenix over at Fraser Ryan to get on a call because he's very big on SPAT. Um, I'm a big component of SLATs 
and idiot. And so the discussions that I'm going to be having with clients and I'm going to be sending out emails to all of my high net worth, ultra high net worth clients, you know, showing them the Biden tax proposal and this is starting the discussion of, hey, perhaps we can create an irrevocable trust to have it set up and then we can see how the election goes. But uh, spousal lifetime access trust, the flats, um, you know, each spouse can create them, as you know. They can't be reciprocal trusts, so you have to modify the various provisions. The, the problem with that is a lot of times I like to create flats in two different tax years. That That's one of the ways to make it different. Obviously, there's a bunch of other ways that you need to tweak so they're not identical, but different tax years arguably is one of the, the best ways to do it. Well, we don't have that luxury now. We, we don't have the ability to wait till next year to create the, the next you know, flat for the, the other spouse, they both really need to be done here. So the, the what I've been talking to clients about that is that you could structure these flats in the same tax year. They, they would need to be significantly different. However, perhaps one spouse creates a, a, a flat um, for the, the other spouse, but then the other spouse creates an irrevocable gift trust structures, structured as an idiot and intentionally defective grantor trust. And, and maybe that's, you know, one of the, the best plays there. So that avoids reciprocal trust doctrine. But I mean, you have two different types of vehicles that are really popular. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on each of those and, and what your thoughts on structuring of them are um, for using up some of the exemption. Sorry, let me phrase that for using up all of the exemption if we can. Yeah, just in case uh, anybody's a little bit lost with the acronym. So the, the SLAT is the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. What it basically is, is one spouse creating a trust for the other spouse. It's an irrevocable trust. The other spouse does not have sufficient control over the trust, somewhat like these trusts for kids we were talking about, such that the assets in that trust are not included in the estate of the recipient spouse. And they're not included in the estate of the, the donor spouse. Okay, that's the slat. And then the, mm -hmm. the idiot, the intentionally defective gift trust or grantor trust is an irrevocable trust set up for usually somebody other than a spouse, usually kids and grandkids. You make a gift into it. And the, the defective piece, quote unquote, is that the donor is treated as owning the assets in the trust for income tax purposes excuse me, so choked up talking about this. Um, uh, they're <laughs> treated as the owner of the assets in that trust for income tax purposes, and they, the donor, pays the income tax for the trust. So effectively, whatever's in that trust grows tax-free. Uh, so it's almost somewhat like a Roth IRA, like you're sort of creating a Roth IRA, because at least vis-a-vis -vis the beneficiaries of the trust, because the parent is going to, say, pay the tax for the trust uh, on behalf of the kids. Okay, so for the slat, uh, yeah, I I do like slats. I've I've done them uh, at the end of 2012 when there was a bit of a mad, mad rush. We were doing them. I am the same as you. I don't like to do two in the same year. Uh, if I can split them up into different years, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, I think one way to sort of short, short circuit that you could potentially uh, this doesn't necessarily fix the problem 100%, but you could potentially do one slat and the and then the other a lifetime Q-tip trust, and at least you have kind of locked in the excess GST exemption, assuming that that's also going to come down inside that uh, lifetime Q-tip trust. So you have one trust that's a slap, one trust that's a Q-tip. They're functionally different from a tax perspective. They have different provisions almost uh, certainly. And so you've got, you've got enough differentiation, I think, that you would avoid uh, the IRS saying, yeah, we see what you did here. You didn't really make it an economic change 
you still control all the assets the same as you did before the gift. So we'll ignore the trusts exist at all. Um, so I think that's one sort of step in between doing two slats in the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem with slats right now is it's mid-August and we're kind of starting to run out of time to do two <laughs> that don't look like they were done one day and the next day. Like, I mean, you know, is it is it that much better to do one at the end of August and then say one at the beginning of November than to do one in October and December, right? You know, does that really fix the problem? I don't know that it, you know, I mean, like, I don't know that there's one month is the magic amount of period period of time or two months is the magic period of time where now the trusts aren't reciprocal and nobody knows the answer to that. So it starts to get me really nervous where now we're starting, we're getting really close to like the last quarter of the year and somebody, somebody could be doing two of these slats and the IRS may kind of wrinkle their nose at that and not really go along with it. Um, I, I love idgets. I, I use them frequently. Uh, oftentimes when we're setting up trusts that are going to have, you know, somebody's revocable trust that's going to pour into uh, trust for kids. We have them set up the trust for the kids and, and dynastic trust. We set, we have them set those up right now. So they create idgets for the kids now. And then those idgets become the beneficiaries of the revocable trust. So everything just kind of pours into the, the idgets and then we can do gifts into the idgets during lifetime. Um, so I love that plan. I will, I use them a lot. I think they're super useful. Um, I think I like them even more than slats. The, the slats, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of them. Um, I, I surprisingly haven't done as many as I'd like, um, but I, they're becoming so popular nowadays that uh, you know numerically you're probably seeing quite a few a month, to be quite honest. Yeah, the, the reciprocal trust doctrine, I don't know if it was uh, law school or uh, our LLM program that just scared the dickens out of us with the reciprocal trust doctrine. And, and I listened to uh, Domingo uh, Sue from Perkins Cooey spoke at the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Conference. Um, and he, you know, maybe he, he was a little, had a little bravado about it, but I mean, he's, he's saying avoiding the reciprocal trust doctrine should not be too difficult. And he was going through the cases, I believe it's the estate of uh, Grace, and there's a few other ones where, I mean, the judge and the rulings in favor of the taxpayer were, were, were quite well, where, I mean, if you tweak a certain enough provisions, um, it'd be very difficult for them to argue. But but yeah, you and me, it's, we are in August. And, and so, yeah, I agree with you. If one in August and one in December, does that make it far enough away? But like maybe, um, but I, I still wonder if the IRS really wants to challenge these types of things. Um, I, Gosh, if I worked for the IRS and my best argument was the reciprocal trust doctrine, I, I wouldn't want to take that case. But uh, you know, who knows? I, I think these years, just like in years past, we're probably going to see a bit more case law because the IRS, the estate gift and GST tax unit, they have some of their more bright people there. Um, they, they know what we're doing. I mean, they know the transactions and they're going to be looking for the ones that uh, have the most hair on them and bring those to court. So maybe we'll have some more reciprocal trust doctrine cases uh, in the future. But yeah, the, on the the idgets, um, the irrevocable gift trusts, we, we kind of discussed this earlier about the revocable living trusts. What provisions do we have for the kids? And this is another way, and, and I'll talk about this uh, all night long, is I'm just such a big proponent on the, the humanistic approach on making sure the kids are prepared for the wealth, making them stewards of the wealth. But now is an opportunity if the parents really want to start that process. They don't have to wait for the revocable living trust to do so upon their death. You can create the idgets for the benefits of, you know, a child. Each child could have their own idget. They could serve as the co-trustee with 
you know, a financial institution or just somebody with a bit more acumen to kind of, you know, get the beneficiary up to speed. I mean, obviously now they're the real beneficiary and they have access to the wealth, but you can start the process and see it unfold during life. You can have those family meetings. You can still have some safety nets in the trust to make sure the kids just, you know, don't yank the assets out and say, thanks mom and dad. But yes, it's another component where when you're discussing this with clients where they're like, well, gosh, I don't know if my kids are ready, but I'd like to use my exemption amount and I have the ability to do so. We can walk them through as advisors what the options are there, and we can still structure the irrevocable trust to kind of kick the can down the road of saying, well, they're not going to get, you know, you know, very much of anything now, but they're going to serve as co-trustee and see how this thing works. Yep, precisely. It's a, it's a testing ground. It lets you, it lets you see that you know pretty well, like how these things are going to play out because you see how the kids react to having their own trust. Sometimes uh, I'll have clients react like, yeah, I don't know. It sounds expensive. It's like, well, first of all, not really. Uh, especially when you start compares, comparing it to the amount of tax savings we're usually talking about. If there's an actual estate tax issue, uh, it's kind of a, it, it washes out very quickly uh, again, because of the magic of compounding and interest, but also, um, it depends on what assets they're going to be putting into these trusts. If they're just going to be making gifts of marketable securities and cash in the first instance to do this kind of test run, it's not going to be very expensive to set those trusts up. Now, if they want to do much more sophisticated planning, set up kind of family entities and family partnerships and make discounted gifts into those trusts, yeah, it's going to be a little more expensive because it takes it takes a little bit more time and there's more to the transaction to get it just right. Um, but again, if you're looking at overall on the if you're looking at it on a long time horizon like the amount of tax savings that you're getting out of it is so enormous that it's almost silly to even uh, be uh, arguing about the potential legal fees because the legal fees are never going to be even close to the tax savings <laughs> yeah, that's why that's why I like our area is that you know anytime a client has questions about the legal fees it's always just like all right I'm gonna push this piece of paper across the table here's the millions of dollars in taxes I'm saving you and then oh by the way here's my bill and, and mm -hmm. I have a calculator there I'm like I can calculate the dollars you paid per tax savings but I mean usually clients are very appreciative of what we do but yes um, so yeah I, I wanted to jump into other aspects of the Biden tax plan otherwise I'll, I'll talk about these exemption amounts mm -hmm. uh, all day long uh, but yeah can I sorry can I say one thing sure. about the exemptions before I move on and just this is more of a reminder to everybody than anything else. The reminder is if you're dealing with somebody who's a non-resident, non-citizen of the United States, their exemption is not going to change. Their exemption is $60,000 and they pay a state tax on all of their assets located in the U.S. And it is not going to change. No one is proposing changing it. No one has ever proposed to change it. It's going to be 60000 for now and probably forever. Uh, so just know that if you have a non-resident, non-citizen with assets in the U.S., everything that we're talking about, I mean, it does matter. You kind of have to know to do the planning for them. Uh, but the exemption numbers are irrelevant to that person. They might as well have zero <laughs> I exemption. I don't think Congress, and this was me picking on, I don't think Congress and the Senate even knows that there's a difference in, in the tax code. There's a few areas of the tax code. When, when new tax bills come out, I'm like, oh, goody, like they're finally going to fix this interesting quirk in the tax code. I think my favorite is the, the fact that an irrevocable trust or an estate they have these different progressive tax rates where you reach the top tax bracket after only $12,000, $12,000 plus of income. And, and as you know, this was created back 
uh, many, many, many years ago when anybody who had an estate, so the early 1900s or even before that, and, you know, anybody who had a trust, they were too wealthy. Therefore, we had these different progressive tax rates. They've never even changed them throughout all these years. They've stayed exactly the same, maybe adjusted just for inflation. But yeah, that, it's, it's interesting the thing to point out that, that Congress, I mean, that's not going to change. I don't see the, what I just mentioned changing as well. Nope, nope. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I well, cut so, you off. No, no, no worries. That was a good thing that, to bring up. So the, and I do want to also, I'll just plant the seed. We should talk about grats at some point. Uh, one, just because the Democrats have proposed in years past on, on killing it. Maybe we'll just jump into it now, and then we'll jump into the step up in basis and the capital gains issues. But so I, I, anybody who's spoken to me at any length about estate planning, I, I like to joke that I have an unhealthy uh, you know, fascination with grads, grantor retained annuity trust. They're, they're easy. I, I think they're the, the often overlooked and forgotten area of advanced estate planning. Um, you have clients that have you know substantially high uh, investment accounts, large investment accounts just sitting there that they'll never need. Well, let's put it in the grass. I mean, the interest rates, I didn't think I'd be saying this in 2020. Um, I remember saying it in during session in 08, 09, is that interest, quote, interest rates are at an all-time low. <laughs> and so doing a grat right now, uh, I don't know what the AFR rates now, I mean, they're next to nothing, but you can do a two-year grat and, and the hurdle rate is, is probably roughly 2%. I probably can look it up when we're uh, discussing this, but I mean, a two-year grat, if it outperforms that 2% hurdle rate, I mean, you can transfer gobs of wealth to the next generation um, without much effort. And I'm a big proponent of rolling grats, so just two-year grats, um, and then just keep rolling them into new grats. But the question then becomes, and Brent, I'll have you chime in on this, is that with the interest rates being so low and the fear that the Biden tax proposal may ultimately attack grads, should we be going against the, you know, the, the I guess, the golden rule of just keep rolling two-year grads rather than locking in an interest rate? Yeah, and so to, to come all the way full circle on that here, just a second. So the interest rate is 0.4% in August. <laughs> I, uh, I had I I had to look at it several times to believe my eyes. It's 0.4%. It, it, is the long long term rate is it two percent or what's the long term rate? Dad? I think that's the long term AFR in August. Yeah, okay. it's uh, well the long term AFR is 1.12%. percent. Oh jeez, it's it, no, it's I mean, crazy. I mean, okay, so off in the, in the wrong direction. So yeah, if it's that low, it, well, it used to be two percent like three months ago. <laughs> So, uh, so just to, to maybe give a little bit of context in, in case anybody's wondering, the idea with the grat is you put property into the grat, the grat pays you back an annuity that when somebody like Darren or I set it up, uh, the annuity's value is equal or almost equal to the value of what you put into the grat. And what that means is in the, in the eyes of the IRS, you're getting back everything you put in and therefore you didn't make a gift when you put the money in the grat. If functionally, this is not exactly the math, but functionally, if what's in the grat grows at a rate of this month, more than 0.4% over its term, and Darren is suggesting two, a two-year term, which I, 
I think is pretty normal and, and usually good. Um, then the excess growth above the 0.4% goes directly usually to kids, gift tax-free, okay? That's the, that's the setup. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, well, you get to use the interest rate in, in the month when you create the trust. The interest rate fluctuates month to month. And so if you think interest rates are going up, there is a temptation to make the graph much, much longer term. And um, I think since interest rates are basically at historic lows, I actually, I uh, I don't think it was this month. I was, I think it was a couple of months ago. I was trying to pull up all the, the uh, list of the historic rates, the quote unquote 7520 rate. I didn't see anywhere on the chart that the interest rates had been this low. And I think at that time, the interest rate was like 0.8 percent. The 7520 rate was 0.8%. Um, so these are literally historically low uh, interest rates. There's there's two things that cut against it. One is if if the grantor dies before the end of the term, then they have to receive essentially all of the assets in the trust back. There's one exception to that, and it is if the uh, grant term is long enough, then actually what they get paid back is the then equivalent value of, of an of the amount of principal that would need to be paid to cover the annuity for the remaining balance of the term. And you use the interest rate in the year of the death. And so that this was back in like 2010, 11, 12, and people were suggesting, well, maybe what you would do is you would create a 99 year grant or, you know, 99 was sort of a, a number out of thin air, but like a really super long term grant. So you die, you know, you're going to die during the grantor is going to die during the term. And some of the property in the trust is going to be included in their estate. However, number one, because it's a very long term, there's going to be a lot of present value discounting when you figure out its value. And number two, if the interest rates go up, then the present value discounting is going to be even higher. So a much smaller piece of the principal, not the full value of the principal at the time of the death, is going to be needed under the IRS calculations to fund that annuity payment. And therefore, a much smaller piece of the principal, less than 100%, would be includable in the grantor's estate. The idea is you put it in the grant. It's a long-term grant. You die during the term, as you're statistically um, going to do. And then okay. you, you basically get, just based on the math of the way that the annuity uh, terms are, are calculated, you get a discount on your assets. It's as, if, it's as if you held on to the assets, but in the eyes of the IRS, they were worth less than they really are. So that it kind of spawned that thinking. I don't know that the logic is any different now than it was then. It's probably actually more compelling now than then. Um, I still like rolling grats. I've I've tried to run numbers on rolling grats where like interest rates go up really high and you're doing rolling grats. I think they still are always better than doing long-term grats so, mathematically. Uh, I'll, keep, I'll keep going back to the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Conference. Excellent conference. Anybody gets a chance to go to that, I highly recommend it. Um, but uh, David Handler, at uh, I believe it's um, or is that Kirkland and Ellis? He, he yeah. did a presentation there on they did the calculations of rolling grats versus like an eight year or 10 year grat. And the argument, you know, and they conclusively proved this, at least in my mind, is that the rolling grat for two years, and I guess we should pause there why two years, for whatever reason, the IRS uh, does not like grats that are shorter than two years. So if you had it, 
I always thought it'd be fun if there's a taxpayer out there that would just be like, can we just, you know, test it maybe one and a half years or just a little bit less than two, but the two years is magically the IRS's rule where they don't really challenge these, these grads. But for two-year rolling grads, if at the end of year one, you take that amount and put it into a, a new grad, if you keep doing that, even with interest rates, they, they, they usually don't creep up. Um, it's not like they could jump from 0.4 to 5.4 in, in one month. That would be you know, so detrimental and damaging to the economy that they can't do that. But because you have these things in, in place, they say you always outperform by having rolling grads and a long-term grad, especially since grads, they really need to do very well in year one. And if they, they tank in year one and then you're starting to distribute money out, it, it can really never catch up. So it's one of those things where if the year one in year one that the economy tanks and you have a 10-year grad, it's never going to catch up. And so you're better off just having a new grad starting over. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, glad, but... I'm glad to hear that because I've, I've tried to run those numbers on my own. Uh, and I've always come up, the conclusion I've always come to was that two-year rolling grads did better than any other setup. Long-term grad or what you might call like a mm -hmm. grad ladder where you do like a two-year and then maybe a five-year and like a 10-year. So you're doing like a ladder of different terms and all, you know, every which way that I could run it, the two-year rolling grads always did better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, what the Biden tax proposal, and this is going back to, um, geez, I, I think the Obama administration where they, they're not going to kill grads entirely, but just based upon what we've discussed on rolling grads, they want to say, okay, we can't really remove grads from the tax code. It just be, it would mess up too many other things in the tax code. But what we can do is if you're going to do a grad strategy that we're going to make sure that you have to do it for 10 years. And so that's the way they can potentially limit it. And so it's interesting that that's their mindset where, you know, that's why we're trying to do these rolling two-year grads is because they can be so much more effective than, than a long-term grad. So I always like to, to point that out, but just to make sure we have enough time to, to go over the other aspects of the Biden tax proposal, I, I think the most alarming thing that, that people have, have read and seen is the what they're attempting to do to capital gains. Now, quickly before I get into that, the Biden tax proposal also uh, is proposing to raise the top income tax bracket to 39.6%, um, you know, increasing it essentially removing the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which is getting it down to 37. But as far as capital gains goes, the Biden tax proposal has done something that we really haven't seen before, or at least that hasn't, hasn't been this close to potentially coming to fruition, is that if you have, in any year, if you have over $1 million in income, the capital gains tax rate for you, taxpayer, becomes an ordinary income tax rate. And what that ultimately means, and yes, there's different capital gains tax rates, 15 20%, and then the 23.8%, uh, but I'm just going to use the, the number 20% for simplicity. So if your income in any given year is over a $1 million, you don't get the 20% capital gain tax rate. You get to use the 39.6% tax Rate. Now, this is, this is uh, I don't want to use uh, too big of adjectives, I don't want to say alarming, but I mean, this is, this is fascinating in the sense of we have tons of clients that are business owners, and you're telling me if, if they're going to be selling their business, which a lot of times it's north of a million dollars, instead of getting that 20% capital gains tax rate, now they're paying ordinary income? I mean, that's, that's pretty staggering. Um, Bob Keebler recently, you know, presented on, you know, discussed this topic and is ultimately saying in California, and I don't know how you do the California taxes, uh, but if 
you go from 39.6 and then you add 13.3 and California hides a bunch of other things in there. Keebler was ultimately saying is that roughly uh, the tax rate in California if you sell your business over a million bucks is uh, 69%. For every million dollars you sell your business for, you get $310,000 back. So that was the the ooh and awe that, you know, during the presentation on that component. So that, I mean, that, that I'll pause here to get your commentary on it. I mean, what they're trying to do, obviously, is tax the rich in a lot of ways, but raise revenue for who knows what. But yeah, I'd be curious to see your thoughts and, and what your, I guess more importantly, what your clients would, will think of this. Yeah, it it's... Uh... It's an interesting proposal. I, I'm a, it's a little bit of a head scratcher in the sense of like, why is it that a million is that much worse than 999,000? Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a big cliff. And I, I always am a little, I, I'm always a little slanty eyed or, or cross eyed on, on, uh, on big arbitrary cliffs like that. You know, what is it that what is the ill that happens at that exact moment that justifies what they're doing? It, it could be that they're going to fund programs that all of us will jump up and down for. Uh, I mean, that certainly could be possible. But you know, why is it that that is the number that justifies taking that money and putting it somewhere else? Okay. Then I'm not sure, and I haven't heard anybody talk about the details of how it would work. What I'm not sure about is, are they going to tax you at that rate, regardless of when you realize the capital gains or are they going to still let you if you if you can structure this way stretch out the realization of the capital gains right now for a lot of our clients still at uh, say 23.8 percent federal rate they don't want to pay that in one year if they don't have to and so oftentimes for them it's better to uh, structure the transaction as an installment sale where they get to pick up the capital gains over time uh, so they they're going to fund some of it on a note that allows them to get installment treatment, or they're going to structure some or all of the sale as part of a charitable remainder trust that also allows them to take back up to, up to 90% of proceeds over time and then realize those gains over time. If, if the proposal is they're going to tax even, even those situations where you're picking up the gains over time, not all in one lump sum at the same rates, it's going to be really difficult to plan around. I mean, it's just almost going to be impossible to plan around. If they don't uh, make it so that uh, that high rate applies to an installment sale where the, each installment is less than a million dollars of capital gains, then I think it's just going to push people into doing installment sales and setting up charitable remainder trusts. The other option, uh, the other thing is it's going to make qualified small business stock that much more important. So you're probably going to see businesses, if they have the time and the ability to do it, um, pivot to make uh, C-Corp elections so they can qualify to have um, qualified small business stock because qualified small business stock, you can sell up to certain limits, capital gains tax-free. So it's going to make all that kind of planning uh, that much more important for business owners. But of course, we don't know the exact details of the plan. I'm sort of speculating now. Yeah. And my speculation on this one is that, you know, I gave the example and, and I find it alarming if somebody puts their blood, sweat and tears into a business and then ultimately it's going to get stuck with this I have a tax bill. I don't think, well, <laughs> this is this is Darren predicting again, and we know how well it happens during election years, but perhaps they're going to carve out exceptions for businesses where maybe what they're really aiming at with this, you know, eliminating capital gains is for, you know, marketable securities. Um, so they may have, and 
gosh, I can't only imagine how they draft that statute. But as we both know, there's, you know, state tax returns, there's special use valuations, um, farm um, appraisals, those types of things where they carve out, perhaps they're going to be doing the same thing with this tax. So I'd be interesting to see, I, I think this one would you know, perhaps be the most upsetting. Um, we were, you know, previously talking about, you know, 11.58 million getting dropped to, you know, 5.79 million. Um, to most of the population, I guess, you know, that's less alarming to them where this one might be uh, more of a head scratcher. Yeah. Now, the other the other aspect of capital gains that um, has been proposed is that same concept, if there's, if they're going to have some sort of net worth threshold or income threshold where ultimately they were going to be eliminating a step up in basis uh, for assets uh, upon one's death. So the basis would carry over to the beneficiaries and that would be essentially taxed on the unrealized gains at death. So I, I think that is uh, another aspect that I'd like to get your thoughts on about this part of the, the proposal. It would make us a lot like Canada is <laughs> yeah. what it would do. Uh, I mean, the, the it would flip planning on its head. Right now, a really smart plan is take low basis assets, put it in the hands of the sickest person in your family, let them die owning it. And then when they die, you get a brand new tax basis equal to its fair market value on their date of death. That's like really great tax planning. It'd be the reverse. <laughs> Take all your high basis yeah. assets and shove those into the hands of the oldest, sickliest person in your family. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It is exactly it's the Canadian tax system, and so when I see this, I'm like, all right, well, well, how do you how do you compute it? Well, both both you and I know that I mean the state tax is calculated on the you know gross estate. Obviously, there's deductions and exemptions. So, are you taxing the estate? First at 40%, and then there's the income tax aspects of the unrealized gains at death. I mean, you could have these wild scenarios where I, I don't know what the tax rate was, but if you got 40% of state tax, that asset just got taxed, and then you're getting taxed on the other. It's just essentially another 40%, 3.96. Uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would work. The, our most recent um, flirtation with this was in 2010, 11, 12, where we had the carryover basis election under 1022. But in that, but in that uh, instance, you could elect out of the estate tax and then use carryover basis. And then they get, I can't remember what, I think it was like $1.2 million of basis that you could allocate out to your assets. So yeah, I'd be curious to see if they do this, whether you, you get that election where you can elect out of paying estate tax, but you don't get the step up in basis. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's a nightmare, by the way. Administratively, it is a pain in the rear. Yeah, and, and like anytime these proposals come up, um, and, and Elizabeth Warren had essentially the the wealth tax uh, uh, proposal, where you'd have to calculate somebody's net worth each year during their life, and if they're over a certain amount of net worth, they'd be taxed. And, and you know, I took a step back. I mean, that really hasn't been close to coming to fruition. It's been thrown out there. I took a step back. I'm like, man, logistically, how do you enforce that? I mean, do wealthy people now have to have in-house appraisers on staff every year updating the appraisals? And, and I looked at that proposal and I'm just like, gosh, I need to become a certified business appraiser quickly. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's fascinating. I always take a step back and say, okay, logistically, um, you know, what do these types of things look like? So yeah, the capital gains one, I'm having a lot of 
difficult conversations with clients, maybe coming full circle to estate planning during the pandemic. A lot of our clients' businesses have taken a hit during the pandemic. Um, unless you're in the business of selling pasta, uh, face masks, uh, toilet paper, I guess, early on in this, uh, most people's businesses have taken a hit. And so if they see this coming down the pipeline and say, well, wait a minute, I can't sell my business now. I was going to before the pandemic hit, but now uh, I'm faced with, do I have to force myself to sell a business to get my capital gains tax rate rather than rolling the dice and paying for roughly 40% of ordinary income? So a fascinating aspects going on with this, but yeah, this one is uh, giving a lot of my business owner clients a lot of heartburn at this time. Yeah. Now, now speaking of businesses, um, you probably saw this, but they're proposing to increase the corporate tax rate to 28%. There's some other phase outs. Um, I, I don't get too in depth into a lot of the, the corporate tax planning. I rely on a lot of the CPAs here, but yeah, any thoughts on, on those proposals? Yeah. I mean, a 28% corporate C corp uh, tax rate, we should say is kind of meeting in the middle. We used to have 35% rate they reduced it to 21. So they bump it up to 28. You know, uh, I don't know if it is a huge factor, um, even at 21%, because with a C Corp, you still have two levels of tax. You actually don't do better with a C Corp um, unless you're holding on to cash and you're not paying dividends out to shareholders than if you have an S Corp or a partnership that's a pass-through entity, uh, because the the combined C Corp rate plus the dividend slash capital gains rate is higher than the individual rates uh, that you pay on business income. Plus the pass-through business income can qualify for the 199A pass-through income deduction and get an up to 20% deduction on that income, depending on the recipient's adjusted gross income. So, you know, does it make a huge bit of difference between 21 and 28? I, I, I honestly don't think it does. Because I don't think it actually moves the analysis because already at 21, unless, again, unless you can just hoard cash in the corporation, which has its own issues, um, you're still not better off to do that than to have a pass-through entity. I think it's more of a, it's more of a, a show. Um, most corporations, they don't pay the, the posted rate anyways because they can take so many different deductions that it reduces their mm -hmm. their effective rate well below the maximum uh, rate that's applicable to C corporations. And at a 35%, most major corporations weren't paying anywhere close to that anyway. So is 28 going to be that much different? You know, I don't think so. It is interesting though, because yeah, if we, we go back to um, you know the negotiation that the Democrats and Republicans might have, depending on how the chips fall in November of, you know, Biden proposing 3.5. I agree with you. I, I think ultimately they'll probably end up at five adjusted for inflation. So it would be essentially the Obama tax plan back in place. But it's, uh, you know, I'm surprised for the increase, the corporate tax rate, they didn't start with the 35% chip for negotiating, but is 28 fair? Um, I don't know. I mean, you're right. I mean, most corporations have a lot of ways. They have a lot of good uh, major accounting firms helping them out on that. Um, but at 28%, I mean, I guess it's fair. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, so you know, it is meeting in the middle. Pretty much. And the other thing that there, there's a little tack on to that, and I can't remember what the threshold number is, but basically for certain very large corporations in the tax code, that's usually like, you know, they make like $500 million. It's like, almost no corporation that I deal with, with by individual clients. Uh, but for like very large corporations, uh, 
they were proposing a minimum 15% tax rate. How exactly that would work, how you would calculate it, I don't know. Um, but again, you know, is, is, 15, is, is even a 15% rate really going to move the needle that much? I don't know that it will. They could get to a 15% rate by just slashing a bunch of the corporate deductions. I mean, it functionally would happen that way, uh, but they're not, they apparently willing to do that. So who knows? I don't get too, I don't get too up in, in arms about the business tax rates because especially with businesses, uh, much more so than with individuals, it's about the deductions. The rate is almost irrelevant because the deductions are really what, what drive the amount of tax that you have to pay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, this whole proposal is just fascinating. It's, uh, you know, people ask me, um, it's like, yeah, if Biden gets elected, you know, is that good for your business? <laughs> and I say, well, I mean, in the sense of workload, we're, we're as busy as all get out already. So I guess I'll just get busier. <laughs> but in the sense of, I always, you know, tell clients that like, you know, it's nice to have stability in the tax code. We're busy enough, so we don't need to, to essentially be busier. But to have these rates bouncing around, and as we kind of start off this discussion of, I mean, estate plans from only a few years ago, uh, especially for you know higher net worth clients, they're already out of date. And so if we can get some stability in the tax code and stop you know kicking around the political football with this estate tax exemption amount, that that probably be a good thing. So long as we can finally get to a point where we say, okay, uh, talking about like what's the level where it's becomes evil enough to tax, so to speak, uh, you know, what is that specific number? So with the estate tax, it'd be nice if, if they could just agree on a number and not touch it for quite some time. Whatever that number is, if it's 3.5, 11.58, or in the future, maybe it'll be 25 million, who knows. I like the utopian world that you've described. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. I, <laughs> Yeah, I every time there's been a major tax change, I've had at least one client say, "Oh, is this has this hurt your business?" And I always tell them, "No. Who do you think has to read these things?" Like, this is good. <laughs> every time they change the law, it's good for me. I'm on the implementation side. Uh, it's bad for the clients. They're the, they're on the checkbook side. Mm -hmm. I, I will mention this. So in, in uh, what was it? 2008. Um, 2009, when we're approaching 2010, I would look at every single tax bill that was being proposed, whether it came out of the Senate Finance Committee or the House Ways and Means Committee. And I got a good chuckle at it because after you start reviewing enough of these bills, and this is me picking on politicians, is that you know, like estate planning attorneys, uh, congressmen, congresswomen, senators, they have form. They have some form bank where they have these proposed estate tax bills. And it's funny, like the Democrats, you know, use aerial font, uh, Republicans, it's Times New Road, whatever it ends up being. But you start seeing like they're literally just changing the bill that somebody else used and regurgitating it and sending it out. And so when you see that, that's what they're ultimately doing. Um, you know, I stopped looking at the bills and waiting for them to actually get past that process before digging into them. I think mm -hmm. that's the smart, the sane way to do it. But I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're the ones that have to interpret these bills and you know, I always feel bad for the CPAs. A lot of times they have to file tax returns blind before the treasury regs uh, come out to give them guidance uh, on how to 
the file the tax return. Yeah. So my interestingly, my experience is that when new tax regulations are or tax uh, statutes, excuse me, are being proposed in Congress, it's almost always the lawyers who are silent. The accountants and financial advisors and financial advisory type firms are digging into these proposed bills and looking at them. And all the lawyers are sitting back thinking, yeah, when it's law, then I'll look at it. But before then, I'm not going to waste my time looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've learned over the years that that's the way to do it. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you're just scratching your head. I mean, you'd be scratching your head wondering what's going on. But yeah, mm -hmm. no, it's, it's fascinating. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, maybe we'll have a follow-up uh, podcast in 2021. We'll, we'll look back at this one and see how we did with at least that some of my predictions were. Yeah, I like it. Uh, well, thank you again very much for lending your time you've been more than generous with it and your thoughts i really appreciate it sure i'd love to do it again yeah, absolutely all right thanks again darren all right, sure. hey listeners thank you so much for spending time with us rachel and i both really appreciate it we've really enjoyed doing the podcast we're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information and i hope you feel the same way and if so please subscribe to the podcast leave us reviews uh subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about and also follow us on social media at wealth and law basically everywhere that social media is thanks so much 